Well, have we got a treat for you today on The Profile. Hello, I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine, and today we're replaying an interview I did with John Mark Comer. John Mark Comer is a pastor based out in the States. He's the author of a number of books, and I suppose he's risen really to prominence in the UK, especially this year, because he's released a book that has been so well received across the board. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I have to say, this book is probably my favourite Christian book of this year so far. I gave it a 5 out of 5 review in the magazine. And it's also the very first title that forms part of The Big Church Read. This is a new initiative from Hodder and Stoughton. It's encouraging the church to really join a kind of online book club. And if you want to find out more about that, then I do recommend um, going to the website, which is thebigchurchread.co.uk. And even though this interview was recorded before The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry came out, I think you'll hear in a lot of what John Mark Homer says the kind of beginnings of what became that book. There is so much wisdom in this interview, not just from him as a pastor talking about how to reach out in a very secular city, but also about how we can slow our lives down, practice the way of Jesus. So I really hope this blesses you. This is my interview with John Mark Homer. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is brought to you in association with the magazine that I help edit. It's Premier Christianity magazine. And if you would like a free sample copy of our latest issue, just head to our website. It's premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. But today on The Profile, I am speaking to John Mark Comer. John Mark is the pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, and the author of a number of Christian books, including Garden City and most recently, God Has a Name. John Mark, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. I'm particularly impressed. You have just flown in, literally today. Yes. So the jet lag must be pretty difficult. Yeah, we got in at, I think, 6.45 in the morning, your time, middle of the night, our time. So, you know, we're we're running on coffee and prayer right now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm impressed. Well, thanks for being here. Um, Here on the profile, we always like to go back to the beginning of a person's life and hear about their faith journey. I understand your dad was a mega church pastor. So I imagine Christianity was there right from the get-go. Yeah, absolutely. And that was a part of my story. So I have an amazing mom and dad who I'm really grateful for. They were both first-generation followers of Jesus, grew up in kind of the 1960s rock and roll scene, and then got kind of radically saved in his generation's language, and was a pastor on staff at one of the first megachurches in America. So it's hard to imagine now, but um, in the 1970s, there were only 10 churches in all of the U.S., over 2,000 people. Right. And I grew up in one of them and west coast of America, Bay Area, Silicon Valley. And so that, even that was a part of my faith journey, growing up in the megachurch culture from birth, growing up in evangelicalism with all of the good and mm-hmm. bad. And of course that word means all sorts of different things, all sorts of different people, and it, I think it's about outlived its usefulness. But um, yeah, that's, that was definitely a part of my upbringing. So did you sort of embrace Christianity an early age and kind of haven't looked back since? Yeah, I mean, yes, but I think, um, yeah, started to follow Jesus from a young age and had the privilege of a good home environment to grow up in. But I think the church tradition that I grew up in, as I hit my teenage years, college, became more of a thinking person, mm-hmm. started to read, became exposed, moved to a urban center. 
I think the, the answers that it gave to the questions I was asking just did not hold water a lot of the time. And so there's definitely been a journey there as far as my relationship to the Bible. And, um, and it's been a healthy journey, a robust journey that mm. I love and I'm grateful mm. that I've gone on. Love to dig into a bit more of those sort of changes over time as, as we go. But I, I understand that you planted a church aged just 23. Yeah, well, I was on a team that helped plant a church at age okay. 23. Still very mm-hmm. young. Yeah, actually kind of co-planted it with somebody older and then um, kind of took the lead role when I was like 28 or something like that. That's incredible. And is that the church you're at now? Yeah, absolutely. Bridgetown Church, right in the west end of Portland, Oregon. And how many people are you gathering on a Sunday now? Well, it's different. We used to have multi kind of location. We mm-hmm. did that. And actually the one I'm at now, what we call Bridgetown Church, is only seven years old technically. It started as a location and then became its own healthy a church for all good reasons. And it's seen about 1,500 people or so on a Sunday. Right. Well, one of the really interesting things about that from a UK perspective is is I understand that the culture in Portland is is perhaps a little bit different to what some UK Christians may imagine of America. So it's not in the Bible Belt. It's not in a particularly kind of Christian part of America. Tell me more about the culture of Portland and where you're trying to build a yeah, church. Yeah, so most people from England have no clue where Portland is. So it's West Coast, up uh-huh. in the Pacific Northwest, so in between San Francisco and Seattle. And West Coast in general, and specifically as you go north from about San Francisco up, is far more secular, very progressive, very post-Christian, very similar to the UK. And so one of the reasons I love coming over here is even the spiritual climate is very similar. Right. The secularism, the progressive nature, of the socio-political and even moral vision, and the very post-Christian almost reaction against the way of Jesus, mm. not just indifference to it. That's very much our cultural moment. So we're in a city where the running joke is there are, somebody did a study, I have no idea how you do this, but did a study that found out there are more dogs than Christians wow. in my city. But yeah, it's definitely, I live right in the city. Our church is right in the West and we're one of the most progressive cities, definitely mm. in America, if yeah. not in the world. So obviously that presents fairly unique challenges, at least yes. for your part of America. What sort of challenges does that present and how have you tried to, I guess, combat those or, or address those as a church? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a monster question. There's no short answer to that. I think we're living, at least in America, and I'm sure there's some similarity here, in a fascinating kind of cultural moment. It's almost the perfect storm of three or four different streams. One is the post-Christian moment, mm-hmm. where we're now living in a culture that is, in a sense, the byproduct of Christianity on so many moral and social levels but yet is in a kind of rebellious teenager moment against Mm. Christianity. And so that's an interesting moment. Then we're also in the peak of the digital age, you know, 10 years, kind of the post Steve Jobs iPhone released into the wild. And the smartphone and Wi-Fi and all the digital age has really transformed what it even means to be human. And I think there are all sorts of implications for spirituality in general and the way of Jesus in particular, for prayer, for Bible reading, for community, for just being present to God, to others, and even to yourself. Then third, at least in America, and I'm not sure, I think it's pretty similar here. My generation, I'm 37, I'm the first year of millennials, and we're essentially the first adult generation that is the byproduct of divorce on a widespread level. And we're seeing fascinating kind of implications for that. The church I lead is 70% single, mostly under the age of 35, all sorts of professional millennials living in the urban core, probably similar to a city like London. And uh, it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Lots of smart, educated, professional people doing well in their career, 
who just come from like extreme brokenness in their family of origin and are dealing with the emotional trauma mm -hmm. and insecurity and trust and lack of you know clarity about who they are and what they're good at and bad at, just really fascinating moment. Mm -hmm. And then in America, and, and this is not true for the UK, we're also the first adult generation that's the byproduct of the megachurch. And when I say a megachurch, I don't just mean a certain size church, but I mean a certain way of doing church that is kind of an event-based, come for two hours, watch other people do something, and you kind of consume. So we were kind of in this perfect storm. Mm -hmm. So here I am trying to lead this church. <laughs> and what that looks like is we're in an urban center, like the, the pull of culture and its moral vision is just so overwhelming, mm. you know? And it's just the things that we believe, the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, the writings of the New Testament, are more out of sync with our culture now than mm. they have been in hundreds and hundreds of years. Then everybody has a phone and they're like, can't pray anymore anyway, because they're texting <laughs> all the time, posting on Instagram story or whatever. And then people are dealing with trauma from their childhood. And then you have all this like church confusion and the mega church is a general rule. And this is true of I think much smaller churches as well that had that same kind of mindset of church an event you go to on mm -hmm. Sunday. Because a general rule, it's a fair critique to say they did not do a great job raising people to be apprentices of Jesus of Nazareth with the spiritual disciplines or the practices of Jesus as mm -hmm. a core part of what they do. Mm -hmm. So all that to say, that's a long kind of framing of our cultural moment. I think for us, it means that we're coming back to the spiritual disciplines, which mm -hmm. we prefer just to call the practices of Jesus, and having to reteach people a lot of what it actually means to follow Jesus right. from the ground up. And a lot of time in the Bible, a lot of time in theology, because we have to think through the issues, because that's a huge part. But that's not enough anymore. We mm. also have to teach people how to pray, yeah. how to be alone with themselves and God, how to be in community, how to do relationships, how to stay in a relationship longer than mm. a few years, romantic or not. Yeah. And so it's a lot of, I think, back to the basics, which in our American context sounds kind of revolutionary. <laughs> you know, we're doing the spiritual disciplines and we're right, yeah. eating meals together around a table. It's like such basic, <laughs> you know, way of Jesus stuff. But at least in America, we lost sight of a lot of that. Yeah. What's remarkable is, despite all those challenges you just outlined, incredibly significant challenges, and you know, I think I would agree that a number of those, if not all of them, do apply to UK context as well. You have leaders on both sides of the Atlantic yeah. saying, because of all these challenges, this is why it's so hard to reach millennials or young yeah. people, or this is why we don't have young people in our churches. And yet, you know, you are attracting a large number, you just said, was it 70% of your church? Um, was younger, younger yeah, age. Yeah, our problem is we have a hard time attracting people over 40. <laughs> what have you managed to tap into that's got this age group actually interested in the gospel and interested in church? You know, I don't know. I mean, that, that would be a better question for young people in our church, you know? I think um, one of the things that we're really passionate about is recapturing the idea that the way of Jesus is just that it's a way of life. And I think this generation is more experiential than the one before it. And I think that's a good thing. I think that spirituality, or if you want to call it faith, whatever you want to call it, it should be experiential. Mm -hmm. And if it's not experiential, then something's not right, in my mm -hmm. humble opinion. Of course, that goes south at times. It's not just that. And so I think we're recapturing that. I think an openness to have hard conversations. I mean, we would be, um, 
kind of an interesting enigma theologically because I don't know what these words mean exactly here, but we would be more on the conservative side. Mm -hmm. All I mean by that is we have a really high view of the Bible yeah. and we believe that the writings of the New Testament, and particularly the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, are authoritative. And mm -hmm. I know a lot of people are allergic to that word, especially <laughs> millennials, so we might not throw that word out a lot. But we believe that um, to follow Jesus, to say that Jesus is Lord, yeah. is a meaningless phrase unless yeah. if you actually live under the authority of Jesus. And for us, we believe that's mediated to us through the four Gospels and the mm -hmm. writings of the New Testament in particular. And so in that sense, we would be more conservative, but yet we don't look and sound conservative mm. in that sense because we're willing to have open, hard conversations. But I just think you have to do it. Yes. I think one of the reasons there's so much, at least in America, and I think just as much here, there's this huge kind of growing tribe of de-churched kind of post-evangelical angry millennials who are no longer a part of a local church most of the time, but they're listening to this podcast or reading mm -hmm. this book or this author or this blogger or whatever. It's because I think that often the church didn't do a great job of creating a safe place to have tough conversations and to have them in an open, honest, intelligent way. Mm -hmm. And so people had to like leave the church yeah. to talk about the Bible yeah. or leave the church to talk about you know doubt and this and questions. And then they ended up doing it in a way that I think was unhealthy and just as toxic. Mm -hmm. And so I think if we can curate a space inside the church to have hard conversations, mm -hmm. whether it's about the violent portraits of God in the Old Testament or the redefinition of sexuality and marriage in our culture or whatever the conversation mm -hmm. is, if we can create kind of spaces that are safe, that still have a really high view of the Bible, but yet are willing to be just mm. open for people to journey. I think that's a really good step in the right direction. So tell me more about your role and calling as a church leader, because I understand that's been through some fairly significant changes. Yes. And you actually had a period of, I think, of burnout. Yeah. Um, tell me that story of, of what happened. Yeah, well, when we planted, I mean, some of the backstory there is we planted, I was 23, I was the co-planter basically, became lead pastor when I was 28. And we grew by about a thousand people a year for wow. about seven years straight. And so it was just this wild mm. ride, exhausting, like I didn't have any kids at the time and it was just, you know, yeah. six days a week, wake up in the morning and work until I couldn't move anymore kind of thing. And it just, um, and I, I kind of, you know, and we were successful on the outside, by the American megachurch metrics. <laughs> Everything we were doing was just, you know. Everything just, looked great. Yeah, it was yeah. just killing it, you know. And, but yet on the inside, I was dying. My own transformation to become more like Jesus of Nazareth was at a standstill because I was just so emotionally unhealthy from all the work. And I was learning the hard way that I don't fit the mold. I'm not an extroverted CEO. At one point we had, I think, 93 people on staff or something like uh -huh. that. That's not a pastor or a Bible teacher. That's a you know executive director of a nonprofit. That's not <laughs> what God made me to do. So I had to learn the hard way that I'm a human being, I'm not a machine, that I was made to work, but I was also made to rest, that um, bigger is not always better. Mm -hmm and quality and quantity are often in tension. And I had to learn the hard way who I am and who I'm not. And that has been a really hard journey, but so um, much freedom has come out of it as I've realized, oh, I'm not the extroverted CEO, type A, mega leader. Mm -hmm. I'm a, 
introverted, kind of melancholy, thinker, bookish, mm -hmm. reader, writer, teacher. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, I stepped down and demoted myself, which I, I go around telling people, demote yourself. It's the best thing I ever <laughs> did. And uh, demoted myself and stepped down from leading our little family of churches, asked if I could just lead our one in the city, which is where we were living and our heart has always been for the urban core. And uh, that was three and a half years ago, and I have not looked back. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just been life-changing. The last couple of years, I've basically just devoted my life to slowing down. Mm -hmm. I think that hurry, Dallas Willard said that hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. Mm -hmm. He had this great little line, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. So I've just been trying to slow down, really order my life around the spiritual disciplines, uh, prayer, fasting, reading the scriptures, Sabbath, a weekly meal with my community, worship on Sunday, um, living simply through generosity and justice and just an affront to materialism, which is so widespread in our culture, and really just making what Jesus called abiding, uh, whatever you want to call that. Brother Lawrence called it the practice of the presence of God. I love that. Making that the number one priority in my life. And there's been other things too, therapy mm -hmm. and community and health and mentorship. But man, just this last three years of just slowing down, mm. really leaning into the practices mm. of Jesus, and just saying, let's make abiding like the main thing, mm. my first goal, yeah. more than pastoring or fatherhood or am I being a good husband or any of that. Yeah. Let's just make like just moment to moment the practice of the presence of God yeah. from when I wake up to when I fall asleep. Let's make that goal number one, mm. and everything else comes after that. And obviously it's a journey, like you don't, I'm not there, mm -hmm. but I'm at least en route. <laughs> and it has been so transformative. I just feel like a whole new person over the last, and I feel like my transformation to Jesus has started back up, into the image of Jesus mm -hmm. has started back up again. Yeah. And we still have a long ways to go, but at least we're moving in the mm -hmm. right direction. When I, when I read your book, Garden City, I think my favorite passage in that book was where you describe your Sabbath. Yeah. And you describe what you and your family do Every, it's not a Sunday because obviously you're preaching on a Sunday. Yes, so whatever right. day of the week yeah. it is, you have a day where you. This is your Sabbath. Yep. You're not working. When I read it, I just thought I am envious of your Sabbath. <laughs> okay, I want so, this kind of a Sabbath. So I just I has sometimes I hesitate because just let me preface it by saying I my Myers Briggs I'm an INTJ. So I um, love ritual and routine and rhythm. I'm kind of a rules person. Uh -huh. I know a lot of people hate rules. I love rules. They make me feel safe. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what that is, but um, all that to say, so this is just, I see all of this as wisdom, not as some kind of legalistic. Sure. Picture. So it's not, yeah, that's a helpful point. This isn't necessarily the way you're saying everyone should practice their Yeah, Sabbath. no, not at all. I mean, um, it's just, I think there's wisdom. And clearly when I read it, it appealed to me. It may not appeal to everyone. Yes, that's why I preface it in that way. So I think, because what's life-giving for me mm. with my personality, my stage of life mm. is very different than what's life-giving to somebody else who's yeah. a extroverted 20-something who doesn't have any family or kids and mm -hmm. just wants to go out in the town all day. Like, that's just a very different thing. Not yeah. better or worse, fantastic. But yes, for us, we Sabbath, um, no, most people would Sabbath, I think Sunday's the best time. But for me, Sunday's kind of a marathon day. Mm -hmm. We have gatherings in the morning and then at night, I don't get home till about 11 p.m. So um, Sunday's not the best day for me. So we Sabbath actually Friday night to Saturday afternoon. And we, that's, we that's started- That's pretty biblical to be that's fair. Pretty that's biblical. pretty biblical. If you I'm wanna go back lie. to what it was like. People think is that like, that actually is, uh, for those of you listening, the Jewish Sabbath, the, the Jewish day is measured, is measured from sundown to, um, to sundown. 
And so it starts on Friday night and ends yeah. on Saturday afternoon. But that's not why we do it. We honestly <laughs> just do it because we can't it do Sundays. Yeah. And we used to do Saturdays, but we found that actually starting at night with dinner is a game changer. So basically, right. we, we start on Friday night. We um, power off all of our phones, all of our laptops. There's actually no technology in the house for 24 hours. We gather around the table, we light a candle, we read a psalm, we pour a bottle of wine or grape juice for the kids, and we um, invite the Holy Spirit and open our time in prayer, and then we just feast. We just have this like massive dinner. We just eat for about two hours and dessert, <laughs> and we go around the table. I have three kids, and we do highlight of the week, and we just have this great time. And then usually we collapse into bed. We're exhausted by the end of the week, and usually we go to bed really early. There's no, there's no TV to watch. There's nothing. So. Usually we read, we pray, we're all readers. Um, and then we collapse into bed and then Saturday we just get up and there's lots of time and just Bible reading and prayer and lots of good coffee. Then I make a huge brunch for all the kids. It's summer right now, so we'll go on a nice long walk. We live right by a park. We'll go down and get a donut or something like that with the kids or go for a walk in the park and have brunch together. And then in the afternoon, you know, I normally go read and journal and kind of maybe take a walk by myself and the kids will do whatever. My wife is extroverted. She'll ride her bike and go get coffee with her best friend around the corner or something. And, uh, and then we come back together and kind of end it at the end of Saturday. But that's it. It's just 24 hours. For us, we really try to help people to distinguish between a day off and a Sabbath. Mm -hmm. um, a day off is a great thing. A day off is essentially a day where you do all the work that you don't get paid for. So you pay the bills. If you live in suburbia, you mow the lawn or mm -hmm. whatever. And um, you play, mm -hmm. which is great. Play is, a, I think, a essential part of being a healthy human being. And you buy stuff if you want to go out and go shopping or whatever. And that's great. A day off is a great privilege in the modern world. But it's not the same thing as a Sabbath. A Sabbath is an entire day set aside for rest and worship. The phrase used in the Old Testament is a day that's dedicated to Yahweh. And so we just think of it as man, a whole day dedicated to Yahweh. But that doesn't mean like the sober kind of like over serious, mm. like we're just fasting all day yeah. and memorizing Leviticus. For us, that means like delight, like mm. what, what is life giving? What just brings us to those moments where we just feel so much gratitude to God for our, our place in his world mm. and what just draws us into deeper connection with God, with each other, with our own soul. And so for us, it's like nine times out of 10, it's the best day of the week mm. for all of us. And we love it and we savor it and we're always sad when it's over. <laughs> um, but we have another one six days later to look Absolutely. forward to. Absolutely, to look forward to. Well, as I mentioned, you describe some of that in your book, Garden City, which is a book not just about rest, but about work as well. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about the work portion of yeah. that, because I think for a lot of Christians, they do sometimes struggle. I've had conversations with people who think, well, I'm not, I'm not a pastor. I don't work for a church or right. I don't work for a Christian company. Right. Does my work matter to God? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, that's a huge conversation. I think we need to remember that the Bible starts not in Matthew 1, but in Genesis 1. And literally on page one of the Bible, you have that iconic line about how God created mankind in his own image, male and female had created them. And the first words out of God's mouth is, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky. And then he has this call, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase it, number, rule over the earth and subdue it. And it's interesting, you know, every religious tradition, every philosophical tradition, every great human civilization has to wrestle with the question, what does it mean to be human? 
what is the meaning and purpose in life, or is there any? You know, obviously atheism is even stronger in the UK than in the US. And there's more and more people that say there is no meaning and purpose mm -hmm. in life. It's just a glorious accident, so seize the day because it won't last long, mm -hmm. you know? But that is an answer, even, you know, mm -hmm. even if it's a non-answer, it still is an answer. And I think in the church, often we answer that question with this kind of pseudo-spiritual tone. And that's not all bad. I think of the Westminster Catechism's famous line, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy mm -hmm. him forever, which is beautiful. Like, mm -hmm. I, don't have, I have no issue with that. But the Bible actually answers that question on page one. <laughs> and it's very like down-to-earth answer, so that they may rule. And this word rule is straight up king language. It's the language, a ruling is what a king does or a queen does. And image of God is the exact same thing. So often people don't realize this because there was a little kind of, after the Reformation, there was a bit of a misreading of image of God in Western theology that had to do with the enlightenment. And it basically said, well, human beings are rational creatures because for about 200 years, that's all Western Europeans could talk about was rationalism. <laughs> And then again, which is great, it gave rise to science and medicine and all of that. And so, you know, human beings are rational, God's rational, we're made in his image, so we're rational. But all sorts of scholarship has, has made a very gentle but kind point saying that that's true, we're rational, but that's not what image of God means. Mm -hmm. Image of God was a phrase used all through the ancient Near East for the king. And there was one person and one person only in the ancient Near East that was the image of God. It was Pharaoh mm. or a king of that kind of equivalent. So Genesis is just unreal because it's not just one man, it's all of humanity, and it's not just men, it's men and women. It's the democratizing of all humanity, both genders. It's this beautiful like moment where God essentially creates Adam and Eve to rule, creates humanity to like be the kings and the queens over the world. And then he puts them in the Garden of Eden. There's all these raw materials in Eden. We read about gold and like precious minerals in the earth crust and water. And it's these raw materials. And human's job is to take the raw materials of the Garden of Eden, however you read that story, literal or metaphoric, is to take these raw materials and to refashion them into a place for human beings to thrive in relationship with each other and with God. So that's my definition of work. I'm getting mm. to that. I'm getting to it. Sorry. I I'm a teacher, what That's can I amazing. say? That's amazing. That was a very thorough definition I, of work. I can't, I can't I talk too much, I'm sorry. All that to say, when we go to work, a lot of Christians have, I think, this erroneous, kind of goofy idea that all that matters to God is spiritual work, whatever mm -hmm. that means. So church work or missionary work. And if you have a secular job, again, other people's language, not mine, sure. I don't think those are helpful frameworks then you know your job is just to make money and then go give it to other people to go do mm. stuff that Jesus is passionate about. And while there's a little bit of truth in that, like Jesus is really passionate about the kingdom of God, and I think he's more passionate about healing the sick um, than he is about banking or mm -hmm. whatever, but I think he's passionate about both. Mm -hmm. But that is to totally ignore Genesis all the way to the right, the whole story of the Bible, where to be human is to rule, to take the raw materials of the earth, and to rearrange them into an Eden-like world, a place where justice is done, where mm. human beings flourish and thrive in relationship to each other and above all in relationship to God. That's the main thing that we do through our work, whether it's mm. as an insurance salesman or a pastor or a journalist or a full-time parent or an investment banker or a second-grade teacher or whatever. Like Those are all ways that we contribute to human flourishing. And so work is is where we take up our God-given rightful place as image bearers, and we take the raw materials of the planet and we do something beautiful. And all of that matters to mm. God. 
Now, of course, I think the gospel is front and center and matters more than anything, but mm -hmm. all of that matters to God. I've heard that expressed by a number of leaders in the UK. In fact, I can think of one organization that more or less its entire message is what you've just said. They would yeah. agree wholeheartedly. And yet, when I was speaking to that organization as it happens, they admitted that that message just hasn't filtered down. Mm -hmm. And it, although a lot of theologians and pastors like yourself have written whole books about it, the average Christian often hasn't grasped that. Why is that? Yeah, I, I think there is, I'm not sure if that's true of millennials. I think that might be changing. Mm. And uh, I think there's a number of cultural trends and, you know, some of it coming with the increase in, of, of affluence for a lot of millennials, not all millennials, mm -hmm. right? And so I need to be really sensitive to that. But I think there's a strong desire to change the world yeah. or whatever, not just to like bring home a paycheck and pay rent yeah. or whatever. And with that comes, I think, an acre, an ache inside for social good and to do something that's meaningful and matters. So I think millennials more than ever are interested in that conversation. Mm. And I think the problem that the work conversation has with all generations is it bumps up, I think, against a very limited, truncated understanding of what the gospel is that is a very kind of Western, Jesus died so I could go to you know heaven mm. kind of thing that is not untrue, but it's just a, a very truncated and maybe not even getting the main thing mm. right version of the gospel. So if you open your gospel back up to Jesus' definition of the gospel, which is the availability of the kingdom to all, and then if you set that inside the overall story of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, which is about like the healing and renewal of the cosmos itself, all of a sudden work starts to play a central role in your vision of what it means to follow Jesus. You're listening to my conversation with John Mark Comer. He's the author of new book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Would you like to get a hold of that book? The answer has to be yes. It's one of my favourite books of the year. Well, you can get his latest book absolutely free. Yes, that's right. We are giving away The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's an amazing book. It will really bless you. Genuinely one of my favourite books of the year so far. If you want to get a hold of it, then you get it free when you subscribe to Premier Christianity magazine. So why not go to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. You're looking for the year subscription. If you take out a one year subscription, an annual subscription, then we will send you the ruthless elimination of hurry completely free of charge. That's premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. You're quite bold in, in the book Garden City, which deals with all of what you've just been talking about in terms of work. Quite bold in some of the opening pages, even suggesting people might need to quit their jobs. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I know that's not popular, but I, I don't think that all work is good work. I think that if, as a follower of Jesus, made in the image of God, our call is to rule over the earth in a life-giving way that makes the world more like the Garden of Eden. I honestly think there are all sorts of vocations um, or career paths that don't make the world more like the Garden of Eden. They mm. make the rich richer and the poor poorer. Mm -hmm. They degrade the environment. They degrade the mind or even the body. I think of um, some of the controversy that's come to light over the last few years over the fashion industry. Mm -hmm. The reality, the mixture of gross materialism with environmental degradation, with human injustice. 
the fact that most clothing that people pick up at the street, you know, t-shirt for $19.99 or whatever. Do you have 99 here in pounds or whatever? 99p, yeah, <laughs> 99p, one pound. We, we, got, we got some pound stores there you for got sure. It. Yeah. Most people don't realize that, you know, the fashion industry is the second largest pollutant after the oil industry and wow. is the cause of human trafficking all around the world. Mm. Massive socioeconomic yeah. injustice, horrible living conditions, not to mention the gross materialism. The average garment is worn seven times before it's discarded. The average American at least throws, a throws away 65 pounds of textile waste a year. So like you have interest, Jesus had a lot to say about like simplicity versus materialism. Mm, yeah. He had a lot to say about justice. And the scriptures have a lot to say about care for planet Earth as yeah. God's creation, not just as mother nature. And so I'm not saying no Christian should be involved in fashion. I'm saying I think there are companies that a Christian can't work for mm -hmm. and, and really say this is a calling from God, unless if they're there to instill change. Yeah. But this is where Christians have always been at their best. Some of our best moments, I was just looking at the tube this morning and saw Clapham on there and immediately <laughs> thought of Wilberforce and the incredible <laughs> tradition that you yes. have. Some of our best moments are when people stepped right into the mess of human society and worked from the inside out to change in the direction of justice or a new moral and social vision. Yeah. And so I think Christians actually do this really well when they're awakened to the idea yeah yeah absolutely and of course again your own culture and context west coast america yeah. millennials a lot of people of that sort of age and background are very switched on to those kind of ethical yep. issues. I actually noticed on Instagram, you seem to be sort of dabbling in a bit of veganism. I don't know if you are a vegan. You seem very sort of in with that sort in of stuff that, as well. Yes. I would say I eat a plant-based diet, which means I'm about 80, 90% vegan. And then I, you know, if yeah. you have me over and you have something that looks good. <laughs> You're I not going to say I can, no. <laughs> I can just slip that under the rug for a little bit, you know. And is that for ethical reasons or health reasons? You know, it's a combination. It's not a moral conviction. It's um, more for health reasons. Yeah. And I feel better and um, I get sick way less and I have way more energy. And it is for some environmental reasons and um, a few ethical reasons. But no, it's not like a, I don't have some biblical conviction <laughs> against eating meat. Jesus uh, had lamb the night before he was crucified. So I, you can't really get too far with a biblical argument against meat. Sure. Well, I wanted to move on from Garden City and talk about your most recent book. It's okay. God Has a Name. And it got a very positive review in Premier Christianity magazine. Well, thanks obviously. to you. Yes. Um, <laughs> Again, a great book. And it's based on just a few verses in Exodus. So I thought I'd read those verses out oh, to sort beautiful. of set the, uh, set the tone for the conversation. So it's based on Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 8. It says this, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations. So why write a whole book on just those few verses? Yeah, so the story behind that is I was in seminary with Dr. Gary Bashirs at a Western seminary. Amazing man, mentor, pastor, friend. And he would come back to this one paragraph over and over again and I'd read that, you know, I read the Bible every year, so I kind of, you know, I knew it mm -hmm. was there, but I honestly had never paid much attention to it, kind of read it and moved on. And I did not realize until a number of years ago, that is the, in Bashir's language, that's the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. Right. Meaning the writers of the Bible, in particular the Hebrew Bible, or what we call the Old Testament, circle back to that paragraph 
and quote it and allude to it and rant it and doubt it and believe it and sing it more than any other verse in all of the Bible. And so that was like, wow, I was, I was, that was fascinating to me. So it comes as no surprise that in Jewish culture, that is kind of like the John 3.16. Is that a thing in the UK? Like yeah, John 3.16? Is it like a big deal? Everyone, everyone knows. knows that. Everyone, yeah. everyone knows exactly what John Everybody 3.16 knows. is. Everybody knows, yeah. So you've been a Christian for more than, you know. In Jewish culture, Exodus 34 is kind of like the John 3.16, that in right. the Shema. It's like the centerpiece, like the beginning point for a theology of God. But in Western kind of church tradition, definitely in the Protestant or kind of semi-evangelical tradition, it's like almost unheard of. Mm -hmm. And what I found fascinating about it is that when Western Europeans, and I, and I mean that in the broadest sense of mm -hmm. the term, kind of, you know, the West over the last couple of hundred years, when we think about God, we tend to think about God through the lens of Greek philosophy. Mm -hmm. So if you pick up a systematic theology textbook, especially the older ones, they usually start with, you know, omniscience and omnipresence yeah. and omnipotence. All the omnis. All the omnis, you know, all powerful <laughs> and all knowing. It's all great, great stuff. I don't yeah. think it's wrong. But th that's a very different way of thinking about God. It's a way of thinking about God through, um, you know, philosophical categories. Yes. Yeah. Whereas when God actually says, hey, this is who I am and this is what I'm like, he doesn't start with, I'm omnipresent, I'm right. everywhere, and I'm omnipotent, and I know everything there is. To... He doesn't say any of that. He gets there later. But he starts with what we would call his character, and even not only his character, even like his personality or his mm -hmm. emotional disposition. And it's this beautiful line. He has a name. That right there like caught my eye. Wow, why isn't God's name God? That's a whole interesting conversation. And why is it Yahweh instead? And then it's compassionate and gracious and slow to anger. And I thought, man, this is fascinating. God's default setting is relational more than it is conceptual. Mm. But I think in the West, we often think of God more of as more of an idea mm. or even a doctrine in some of the kind of you know distorted versions of our faith, rather than as a person, mm -hmm. I don't mean human being, I mean a relational being, that we are in relationship with. Yeah. And so that's what I find just really compelling mm. about this verse in Exodus. And you know, you and indeed many others have said that you can become like what you worship. Yes. And so if you have a wrong view of God, yes. you um, you know, that will have ramifications for the whole yes. of your, your life. Yes. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, well, I mean, often you'll hear people kind of write off theology as, ah, it's just, you know, it mm. doesn't really matter, and come on, I just love people, and I just do the, the important thing, you know? And I just think, man, back up the train. Um, yeah, lots of people much smarter than me for a very long time have said, in essence, that what you think about God, what comes to your mind when you say the word God, that will shape the person you do or do not become. Mm. So A.W. Tozer had his you know, great line, what you think about God is the most important thing about you because we tend, he said, by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Mm. You know, it's the whole you become like what you worship mm. kind of idea. You've got some good examples of how this relates to right now. Yes. So in, your, in sort of our culture of different types of Christians, you know, the sort of if you think God is like this, you yes. will be. Yes, yeah, at a broad, I mean, at a broad level, if you think of God as a kind of homophobic, racist, mad at the world, alt-right kind of, if that's who God is to you, yeah. then that will shape you into that kind of a person, right. into a religious bigot who's, yeah. you know, picketing outside of whatever. 
Or, which is far more of an issue where I live, mm -hmm. and I'm guessing the same for you in London, if you think God of God as a kind of good West Coast or urban Londonite, progressive, educated, kind of more elastic about morality and spirituality and basically a universalist, and come on guys, let's all, if that's how you think mm -hmm. of God, then that will shape you mm -hmm. into that same kind of bohemian, progressive, mm -hmm. post-Christian yeah. kind of thing. And, um, and it really matters. So when somebody stands up at the Grammys and says thank you to God for a song about a one-night stand, yeah. um, or when somebody is at a military funeral screaming, or when a sniper is praying before he takes the shot, or a peace activist is praying before mm -hmm. she lays her life down in front of like, all of these people do what they do because of what they believe about God. Mm -hmm. So clearly what we believe about God matters. Who God is has all sorts of implications for who we are, who we're not, who we become, who we don't become. A lot of Christians speaking to millennials do end up more on the sort of left side of that spectrum, the more right. liberal end of that spectrum. I mean, I can think of people like Rob Bell, yeah. uh, people like Michael Gungor, the Liturgist podcast, yeah. very, very popular. Very popular. Yeah. Um, and, and these are people who would, I think, agree that they're on the more liberal end of, of yeah. Christianity. It seems like you're in a bit of a different place to them, but you're still reaching that generation. And it seems to me like you will cri critique the, the left and the yeah. right, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like if we're following Jesus well, both the left and the right will be angry with us. <laughs> Maybe that's just my own like psychosis. I don't know. But yeah, I think I grew up in a conservative culture, more on the right, and um, I can tell you everything that's wrong with it and everything that's right about it. Right. And uh, more, the older I got, the less it worked for me. Mm -hmm. And I saw a lot of my friends, then the pendulum goes to the other side and um, step out of that kind of a church expression into the progressive vision, which usually means stepping out of church because mm -hmm. progressive theology can't seem to keep church around it. And so I would, with a lot of humility, argue that progressive theology kills church long-term. It kills faith long-term. It kills discipleship to Jesus long-term, especially if you don't even believe that the writings of the New Testament and the four gospels are in any way, shape, or form authoritative if you're where you know Bell is or something like smart, thinking, well-written person, but who doesn't believe that the New Testament is scripture, doesn't meet, believe that to follow Jesus you need to um, live under the authority of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's a whole other world that I think takes you not only past church, I think it takes you past discipleship to Jesus. So what I'm fighting for, and maybe it's idealistic, but is a, a third uh, option C, mm. a kind of third way that transcends the liberal conservative divide that mm -hmm. still takes the Bible, a lot of this has to do with how you read the Bible, mm -hmm. that still takes the Bible very seriously as scripture, but also as literature and is open to hard conversations and to nuance and reading the Bible in context mm -hmm. and all of that. But it's at the end of the day, still really serious about mm -hmm. following the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth and the claim that he mm -hmm. is Lord over all of our lives. I, I imagine seeking that third way must be quite difficult. H has, it, has it been painful at times? I mean, have you sort of been misunderstood by? You know what the crazy thing is? I get asked that a lot. And as a number of my friends do who lead very similar mm. churches, it's not. Mm. It's bizarre. I mean, leading a church is hard. Yeah. And a city like Portland is hard. But you would think I would just get all sorts of flack. And um, we really don't. It's right. just bizarre to me. We're just hundreds of millennials. Some of them from conservative backgrounds, others of them brand new to Jesus and like everything that they're reading in the New Testament is like this whole other like, you know, rude awakening kind yeah. of thing at a moral level or a social level or whatever. And yet you would expect that I would yeah. get all sorts of blowback and critique and anger and it's really not. Right. It's just shocking to me. Um, people, I think, really appreciate 
a high view of scripture, a high view of Jesus' teachings, but that is done in a thoughtful, mm. hopefully humble, honest kind of way. I wonder if the third way always works though. I mean, how does that relate to something like human sexuality, gay marriage, th those sorts of hot button issues where it feels like everyone's being forced to take a line one side or the other? Yeah, which is even, yeah, I mean, that's a, obviously that's a dicey conversation to get into, but even the way we frame sexuality has become so binary. This is less than a hundred years old, this even kind of categorizing human beings as homosexual or heterosexual, mm. or now obviously that's broadened out. And now even the LGBTQ community is saying it's not that simple. It's mm. much more complex. Human beings are complex. And so I think the conversation around sexuality is complex. Now don't get me wrong, I stand with Jesus of Nazareth as best I can understand what he is saying and the writers of all of the books of the Bible in the ancient vision of sexuality and marriage as between a man and a woman. But that doesn't mean you have to then default to the kind of slogan, mm. you know, political heavy kind of extreme right wing mm. thing that's that I grew up in around sexuality and marriage. Sure. So let's talk about the books then. Okay. I can tell you're keen to give us some book recommendations and the people who've yes. uh, influenced you in that way. Yeah, um, man, a number, a number. I, I, I like to say that N.T. Wright taught me how to read the Bible and Dallas Willard taught me how to follow Jesus. Wow. So obviously a huge fan of, um, of the UK's own N.T. Wright. Most of the theologians that I enjoy the most are actually British. Really? Um, or some tangentially connected. So okay. N.T. Wright, Chris Wright, his book, um, The Mission of God, mm -hmm. Unlocking the Grand Narrative Scripture, is one of the most important reads for me. Of course, New Begin. Michael Green, his work on the right. Holy Spirit, has been so, so helpful. Richard Bauckham has been super helpful on a theological level. Um, but on a following Jesus level, the writings of Dallas Willard honestly have just shaped me more than anybody else. And everything by him is amazing. It's all a bit of a pain to read. Two most important books by him um, are also very hard to read, but they're The Divine Conspiracy and then his follow-up book to that, to The Spirit of the Disciplines, which are two of the most important mm. books I've ever read. If you're not much of a reader, start with The Great Omission, which is a much shorter form. It's a bit like, like about 50 pages long, and then the rest of it's just essays. So you can just read the first 50 pages, kind of get the gist, and stop if you want. And it's amazing. And then at a popular level, you know, John Ortberg, who was a mentee mm. of Willard, has done a great job of kind of popularizing Willard's mm. ideas and making them more accessible to mm -hmm. kind of normal readers <laughs> and um, the kind of middle of the bell curve in a healthy kind of way. Also, Amazing. Pete Scazzaro's work around emotionally healthy spirituality. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you're familiar with yeah, him. Yeah, absolutely. Man, that has just been transformative. Absolutely just a huge transformative thing for us. Wow. Just from that list of people, that is quite broad. And you've said before that, um, interesting quote, that Protestants have made the Bible the center of their discipleship, whereas Catholics have made prayer the center. It's a both and. Maybe fairly easy for you in your situation to sort of speak um, positively of Catholics and Protestants. I mean, it's not, it's not for every Christian who'd like to. There still can be a big divide between those two communities. But yes. tell, me, tell me a bit more about um, why Protestants and Catholics actually need to learn from each other. Because for some people, that will be a strange idea. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, that's a, that's a huge generalization, sure. if not stereotype. I think my, you know, it's interesting when I talk to my dad, who's 30 years older than me, 67, I'm 37, his view of Catholicism is so different than my view. And I think it's because I grew up post-Vatican II, which, and I'm not by any stretch of an imagination an expert on Catholicism, but I grew up post-Vatican II, 
And then, I mean, can we just all agree that the Pope right now is a rock star? Like, I mean, how could you not like him? He's like the best thing since Jesus of Nazareth. So I, I think that has shaped um, a whole generation's perception mm. of Catholicism. And Catholicism obviously is just as broad, if not broader than Protestantism. But I'm really intrigued by a strain of Catholicism that takes prayer really seriously, whether that be Ignatian or Jesuit spirituality and some of the more Catholic contemplative writers. Um, Richard, Richard Rollheiser has written some amazing things that has just been so, so helpful to me. And my spiritual director is actually a Jesuit priest, so it's really interesting. We wow. had him come speak at uh, Bridgetown Church a few months ago. We did a series on prayer, and we wanted to do a teaching on you know, what Jesus called abiding, or what the Catholics call contemplative prayer. Mm -hmm. And um, evangelicals just don't have much to say on contemplative prayer. <laughs> um, like, I don't mean that to be rude. It's just there's not, yeah. I mean, there's not, we've written a lot of books, yeah. and there's not a lot of them on, like, quiet prayer before God mm -hmm. and stillness and contemplation or abiding. And Catholics have been writing about that for hundreds and hundreds of years. So I had him come and speak. It was really interesting. A few older people had a hard time. Most people loved it. He got a standing ovation wow. at the end. I've never had a standing ovation, <laughs> ever. I've been there 14 years. Nobody else ever has. The only standing ovation ever that I can think of in the history of our church. And I think his teaching wasn't even that amazing. It was good. But I think it, there was a deeply, I think, healing moment mm. there and the symbolic gesture of having an older Jesuit priest mm. whose life, I mean, especially even as a celibate man, mm. is such a compelling example to a church full of single millennials mm. in urban Portland mm. to have a 60-something PhD, mm. highly intelligent man who's celibate and is basically devoted mm. all of that sexual energy to prayer instead. That's a compelling thing. Yeah. So all that I just all I think is we can learn a lot sure. from each other. And he'd be the first to say, "We are learning how to read the Bible from you." Right. And I'd be the first to say, "I'm learning a lot more about prayer yeah. from some really great Catholic teachers." Yeah. I mean, you mentioned it earlier, but the the prevalence of, of modern technology. I'm reading these interview questions off my yes. iPhone. You know, you can't escape it. What have you done in your own life to regulate the use of these mobile phones and technology and everything yeah. else. I mean, you already mentioned Sabbath and switching yep. on. Does, does it have to go beyond that if you want to have a sort of deep, deeper prayer life? Yeah, I mean, I've, I, that we're into the realm of opinion at this point, and I would, I would, you know, probably have a more negative than positive view of technology. I'm really grateful that I could find the studio yeah. with maps. Yeah. Otherwise, <laughs> it would have taken me forever and asking around and the old paper tube map. I remember that from when I. First came to London forever ago, so some great things about technology. I can FaceTime my wife and children who are back home when we're done here. It's great. I love it. But I think um, it has some pretty catastrophic ramifications for prayer, and not just for prayer, for any kind of creative or knowledge-based work. All sorts of writing being done right now in secular society about what the phone is doing to destroy our creativity and even our ability to focus for long periods of time mm -hmm. and do meaningful knowledge-based or information-based work. So, but I'm just thinking it has all sorts of implications for prayer. So I, um, you know, Paul has that great line, uh, everything is, you know, whatever beneficial, but not everything. I will not be brought under the power of anything. Everything's lawful, but I will not be brought under the power mm -hmm. of anything. And so I think the real question with the phone is, does it have power over you? Mm -hmm. And I honestly think that for most people, the answer is yes. I think most people's relationship to their phone, to the internet, to social media, 
is falls right under the clinical definition of addiction. Right. And um, and I think those little pockets of moments that just so much has changed. Like the phone that you have in your hand, mm. ten years ago it did not exist. Yeah. So ten years ago, I remember like you'd be flying across America and you'd be over Minnesota and you'd like finish your book and you'd just <laughs> stare out the window with nothing to do for like an hour. Yeah. Or you'd be standing in line at a coffee shop and there'd be six people in front of you and you'd just stand there yeah. and you'd think, maybe you'd even chat to the person in front of you or you'd be sitting in traffic and you know, whatever, your radio is broken and like, and those, those, some of that was just boredom and wasted time. Yeah. The phone has made, us, made me more efficient than yeah. ever. But those used to be little pockets of time where we could open up to God. Mm. Those were little like potential portals to prayer. Mm. And now all of those moments are gone. Boredom yeah. is something we vaguely remember from like grade school. Because they've decided to put Wi-Fi on planes for exactly, some reason. Exactly, exactly. So you think, that's, you think that's the one place you could go? The one place, the you, one could place you could go. No, where that's you're where like, I catch up on email. Come on, that's where I catch up on all my email and my, my tweets. Um, so all that to say, back to your um, practical answer to your question, I've turned my smartphone into a dumb phone, so I don't have any Twitter or anything mm-hmm. like that. I don't have any email on it. Um, don't use it to search the web or anything like that. I basically use it to text, call, mm-hmm. and then basic functions like maps and weather and stuff like that. And I turn it off every night at 8.30 and don't turn it on until 9.30 the next morning. So I have the evening with my family, get a good night's sleep, and then I wake up, pray, do Jesus stuff, and then yeah. do two hours of deep work before I even turn on my phone. Yeah. And then during um, the workday, I'm just trying to like have it be a tool and not a master. And so if that means I don't carry it into me with a coffee appointment, I don't have a phone open in yeah. front of me when I'm trying to be present to the person in front of me or a meeting or whatever uh, yeah. that is. Yeah. And then, of course, Sabbath, where I turn it yeah. off. And vacation, which is my favorite, where it's off weeks <laughs> at a time. And I bet you don't miss not being able to contribute to the latest Christian controversy on Twitter. I, I don't miss it at all. I'm sorry. <laughs> People just mock me because... I, I only have you know Twitter online, and I literally have it in my schedule once a week. Every Tuesday, I go and I answer any right. anybody who tweeted yeah. at me, and they just mock me because it's been like ten days <laughs> ago responding to some, but I don't know who's there, and I yeah. don't care. You don't and care. I w- I'm much more interested in being present to my three children. And yeah. Being at peace and it's, being aware It's of interesting how I feel like more and more people are talking on these lines and discovering this. I mean, Philip Yancey, for example, um, wrote, as it happens, a blog post about this issue. He said he is no longer able to commit to times of deep reading because yeah. he finds himself distracted. He's concerned his attention span is becoming shorter. Yeah. And he was, you know, to my mind, calling out a problem that many people have realized existed. Yeah. And he's but for, Philip Yancey. Yeah, but because it's Philip Yancey and he's such a well-known, well-respected Christian author, yeah. I feel like a lot of people read that blog yes. who wouldn't have done otherwise. And of course, people did point out it was slightly ironic when people started yeah. sharing this on Facebook. Blah, 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 yeah. um, <laughs> but even so, I think people are becoming more um, aware of it, especially as it rela- relates to reader. And you're a keen reader. Yeah. So what are you, are you concerned that Christians are reading less than... Uh, and I mean in terms of books, not just blogs. Christians appear to be reading less and less books because other people have commented on this about how certainly here in the UK you used to go to Christian conferences and people would recommend books. And I'm sure yep. that still happens in some places. Yep. But generally speaking, generally speaking, you see less and less pastors yep. holding up books saying... And the books this. that make it tend to be a little bit less serious. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is a problem. Yeah, I'm concerned. I mean, I, I, just because... I mean, every generation has its issues. And I think this is one of ours just because um, I think millennials are smart and they are still reading a lot online and blog format. 
but there are some things that just you can't do in 140 characters yeah. or even in a thousand you know word blog posts like you just have to invest a couple hours in yeah. it and um, I just read, you know, David and Stone Brewer's fantastic book on divorce and remarriage. It's right. the best thing I've ever read. It, David is a columnist in Premier Christianity oh, magazine, I'm pleased to say. Fantastic. And yeah. it was the best thing I've ever read on it. Right. But if you really want to answer the question well, what does Jesus in the New Testament say mm. about divorce and remarriage? You need you can't go read a blog post. You need to like spend three hours and you need to go read that book mm. or an equivalent of it. Yeah. So yeah, I think there are all sorts of implications and I think you see it a lot, even in the slide to progressive theology for so many millennials. What's shocking, let's, let's take the sexuality conversation or the marriage conversation. What's shocking to me is not that people are changing their view from the Orthodox historic church. Mm. What's shocking to me is how, with all due respect, lazy they've been about it. Mm -hmm. And when you actually press them, how did you get there? They rarely give you like, oh, I read these 10 books and this is my take on this Greek word and I've exegeted this passage and here's what I think about that. It's, it's like they've rarely even thought it through, in my humble opinion, mm -hmm. that much. It's more of a, well, you know, God is love and blah, 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 and this is the world. It's like this kind of vague, semi-philosophical thing and that doesn't take seriously the writings of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And um, wherever you land on that issue, mm -hmm. I'm not saying all people are that way. I'm saying mm -hmm. a lot of people are. Mm -hmm. And whether it's that issue or another one, um, let's take an issue from the right, let's take military violence or mm -hmm. something like that, which I think Jesus has a lot to say about when you pay close attention. All that to say, I think when people stop reading seriously and thinking carefully, it's just breeding ground for bad theology, which of course then back to our earlier conversation means bad character formation. <laughs> and means we don't become the kind of people sure. that God wants us to become. Yeah. So you're here in the UK. Yeah. Tell me what brings you here and what's, uh, what are you gonna be speaking about here in the UK? Yeah, I'm here for the New Wine Conference and I love coming over here. I've been coming over here for years. Um, our church has been on a journey with the things of the Holy Spirit over the last three, four, five right. years. And we've been learning so much from churches in London. I have some great friends who pastor churches in London and around England that we've just been learning a ton from over the last few years. So for me, um, it's kind of just a great excuse to come over. There's so much cultural similarity between the Pacific Northwest where I live. Obviously Portland's a much smaller city than London, but in uh, London and the UK, uh, I go to Atlanta, Georgia, and I just feel like I'm on another planet. <laughs> I come to London and it just feels like everybody has cooler accents and it's a bigger city. But other than that, I feel the vibe, right. you know? So there's a lot I feel like I can learn here from great thinkers like yourself and other followers of Jesus. So how can people connect with you uh, online if they want to hear more of your teaching or want to get your books? Well, they're welcome to follow me on social media and I will check it once a week. <laughs> so anything they say every Tuesday afternoon, Excellent. Pacific Standard Excellent. Time. We'll hold you to it. If I'll, you reply too I'll, early, I'll I'm going to be concerned. <laughs> exactly. Except sometimes if it's like a heavy tweet week, like my... Twitter feed only goes back so far. It's like something, it just doesn't <laughs> let some. me. I yeah. miss some, yeah. Um, or uh, johnmarkcomer.com or bridgetown.church is our church's website where our podcast and all of that is located. Right, well, John Mark, thank you for coming. It's been a pleasure. It's really a joy and an honor. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this replay of my interview from a couple of years ago with the American pastor, John Mark Comer, and the author of the brilliant new book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Don't forget, you can get that book completely free of charge when you take out a one-year subscription to Premier Christianity magazine. This offer will only run as long as stocks last of this book. So do, uh, I was going to say do hurry, but given that it is the ruthless elimination of hurry, perhaps go slowly, go carefully, go cautiously, go thoughtfully to premierchristianity.com.
com forward slash subscribe uh, and this book also is part of something called the big church read this is a new online book club that's been launched by the publishers hodder and stoughton and it's designed to bring the whole church together to read great christian books so you'll get videos from john mark coma you better read the chapter you better discuss it with friends it's a fantastic initiative find out more at the big but obviously before you join the book club you need the book so if you want to get hold of the book make sure you go to the premier christianity website click on subscribe click on the annual subscription and when you subscribe to the mag we'll send you the book free how about that all right, premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. And that's all we've got time for this week. So we'll be back with another great interview for you. Same time, same place next week. See you then.